podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. What are we speaking about today, Jane? Well, uh, today we're going to be talking to our very good friend, Jin Lali, and we're going to be talking all about the concept of the stress bucket. Oh, that's exciting, isn't it? What's that all about? So really what we're going to be talking about is uh, what people can do and how people can conceptualize the idea of too much stress and how they can think about improving their approach to either coping with that stress or minimizing it. Good, that sounds helpful. And um, I think we'll probably spend a bit of time thinking a little bit, not just about what they can do for themselves, but maybe from an organizational perspective, what they can do for their teams. Yeah, absolutely. As always, we, we try and approach it both from the individual level, but also think about what organization, role organizations can play. Cool. All right, let's get into the conversation. Okay, so here we are in the main body of this podcast, and we are joined today by Jen, and we're going to be speaking about stress, about well-being, about resilience, and things like that, and we're going to be discussing them in relation to a concept called the stress bucket. Um, Before we get into that, though, Jen, would you be able to introduce yourself and say hi to the audience and say a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name's Jen Lally. I'm a solution-focused therapist. I help people eliminate anxiety, stress, and depression from their lives, improve their sleep, and understand how their brain works. Cool. That sounds like pretty helpful stuff, to be honest. <laughs> um, uh, before, we, before we get into, into a little bit more detail, sometimes it's good to start really at that sort of top level, at a high level. Um, when you think about stress, how do you define it? What does stress mean to you? Stress to me means an overwhelm of pressure. Now, not all stress is bad for you. That's really important to remember. So stress isn't a bad word. It's when that stress becomes overwhelming that it is not a good thing. We all need a little bit of stress in our lives. We, we need a little bit of pressure. That's called challenge stress. We are challenged. We don't want to be late for things. We want to do a good job. We want to make sure uh, that we achieve some goals and targets. That's brilliant. But when that tips over into what I call threat stress, it's exactly that. It feels threatening. Now you are feeling highly stressed. And along with that comes often physical symptoms. Your heart can race a little bit. Your blood pressure goes up. Your stomach churns. You get a bit sweaty. You lose breath. That kind of stress, that threat stress, that stress that's not good for you. Yeah, and, and when you're speaking about those, um, I guess those indicators of stress or symptoms of stress, I can I can feel them. You know, I've had them. I've been, you know, preparing for presentations and my palms go sweaty and I can really feel all of that. Um, but the point about, um, you know, needing a bit of stress is something that we've seen as well. And, and we see in some of the things that, that we do, a relationship between performance um, and pressure, and that can be helpful in some instances. But when it goes too much and it, it's this sort of overwhelm and threat stress that you're speaking about, what are some of those the sources of that kind of stress? What are some of the causes that lead to it? Well, what I believe, James, is that I don't believe it's the events in our life that cause that stress. I believe it's our thoughts around them. 
and namely our negative thoughts. Now, if you think about it, there's no one that you know that has never had some sort of stressful event, a bereavement or some pressure at work or financial issues or family issues. But it's just, I find it fascinating that why do some people cope really well with those things and some people don't? You know, this is not, no one's had that, you know, perfect happily ever after. And I see that a lot sometimes with students now. They feel that once they get their degree, they want to meet the right person, get the right job and live happily ever after. And life's not like that, you know? So I think, I believe it's the thoughts around that and namely our negative thoughts. Negative thoughts around those things is what increases stress in individuals. And this is where we're all very, very different. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And and I guess different people have different um, propensity to maybe embrace those negative thoughts, or they've had, um, you know, a set of past experiences that have led mm. them to be people who are who think in certain types of negative ways. Um, how do you how do you think people realize if they're they're sort of uh, adopting negative thought patterns? Do do you think people know in the moment that that's the case, or do you think they learn that through comparison with others, or how do you think people realize that they're in that maybe um, a trappy place of negative thoughts? I think people will know deep down. They might deny it, but they should know. So you'll get feelings of anxiety and depression and more prolonged feelings of stress in that away from the stressful situation, like you said, you feel a little bit of stress when you're about to give a presentation. but And that's quite normal because you want to do a good job. So it's natural yeah. for you to feel like that. Uh, and it's, you know, speaking in front of people, you're feeling a little bit, oh, this is, is it nervousness or is it yeah. excitement? You know, very, yeah. very close feelings, those two. But if you start feeling those feelings just when you're at home and you can't stop thinking about that presentation that you gave or that you've got to give tomorrow, and it's just constantly with you and it starts to affect other parts of your life. For example, then it affects your family life and your social life that's when you need to recognize that this isn't right because there's many people out there giving presentations and talks but yes they will feel nervous as they're doing it but they don't carry it around with them yeah I guess one of the phrases I like is you know carrying your burdens lightly and and you meet some people who are busy and active in their work lives and their social lives and it seems easy Um, and then sometimes you meet other people who are maybe doing less or involved in less and it seems it seems like more of a burden. Is, is that the type yes. of thing that, that you yes. comes across? Yeah. So that feeling of what is a challenge and what is a threat is different from for everybody. So some yeah. people have a certain level of challenge stress that they can take and other people have a higher level. However, you can improve that. You can improve your level of challenge stress. The brain is just like any other muscle in the body. It needs training. And if you can do a bit of brain training, and that's what I do with my clients, it's basically brain training. You can train your brain to start coping with a little bit more stress. Now, we don't have to push it far, but if you feel that I need to be able to cope with these normal life stresses and challenges, and I'm not coping right right now, that's sometimes when you need a bit of help. Do you think, um, I guess in your experience and your sort of observation through your work, do you feel that... Uh, at a sort of societal level where we are, we, we see more stress at the minute or do you think it's less or, or is it possible to, to view any sort of trends like that? I think it's different now. Okay. I don't I don't want to say it's more or it's less. We all have, you know, generations in my family, my father will say quite often, um, you don't, you, your generation doesn't know what stress is. We were stressed, you yeah, know, but yeah. it was just different. I'll say, dad, it was different stress. Things that mattered then, we're in that moment and things are very different now. 
So um, I wouldn't say more or less. I would say different. Something that's been on my mind at various points is whether stress feels like an absolute or a relative thing. I guess if you've had a a relatively low stress life in absolute terms and you have something small and stressful, do you think that feels more stressful to you because you've had less stress in your life? Or do do you think, does that make sense? It can. Yeah, it can. Because, you, you know, you've ticked all the boxes and everything's going swimmingly and a little thing comes along and that's a a huge thing to you because you have no other benchmark and that is actually how you create resilience by you need to go through something to understand to come out on the other side you know what they say don't know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger (laughs) yeah they do. absolutely true because and the thing to remember then is you know like for example you know one of the most awful things can happen is a bereavement of someone close yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. if if you've led a perfect life for for you know years, maybe many years, and you have a bereavement, it, that's going to be hard. I'm not saying you need to go through lots of bereavements to to build up resilience, but you know it will be difficult. But what you need to remember in that point is that there's no one in this world that's never had a bereavement. Yeah. You know, and people are surviving, and there's people sometimes that have had many bereavements before they're 25. Yeah. And they're surviving. So going back to what I said earlier it's not the events in your life but the your thought process around them yeah and just before we we get into a little bit more detail on some of the processes and and the ways that you think about things what was it about this field that that drew you to it And, and I guess you know as a supplementary question what is it that you find rewarding about working in this domain well sorry to answer your second question first if you don't mind yeah go for it absolutely I love changing people's lives people have said to me you've changed my life and that's so rewarding I love working with people and I love hearing people's stories and so what got me into this was uh, twofold really first of all uh, with around people I know family and friends it used to fascinate me how some people used to cope really well and some people didn't and within families who have been through the, you know, the same challenges, how come some people in that family are coping and some people aren't? And the other reason I got into it is my previous career, I used to be an optometrist, which is a, a posh word for being an optician. And I used to uh, see a lot of patients in the NHS uh, and privately who were unfortunately very sick with things like high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes and heart disease, uh, things that we call now lifestyle diseases. And when I got talking to some of these people, they had a story that often began in stress. More often than not, if if not always, there was always something stressful that led them over accumulation of years to the point they were at now where their physical health was getting affected. And I thought, well, this isn't good. I'm just looking at these physical effects of high blood pressure where it's affecting the back of the eyes and, and type 2 diabetes. That's not good. I felt like I wanted to get to the source and right to the beginning. That's really interesting and um, in so many ways plays to some of the stuff James and I talk about, about why we do what we do as well. So it's lovely to hear that. I know you talk um, quite eloquently about a concept called the stress bucket. Could you share with our audience a little bit about what that is? Yeah, sure. I'm known in Edinburgh as a stress bucket girl, by the way. Everybody knows me in my stress bucket. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> So um, there's a few different theories out there uh, around stress buckets. The the way I use the concept of a stress bucket is that every day we put something in our stress bucket. 
And these are our negative thoughts about the day. But very normally, aren't they? Like, oh, I hope that doesn't go wrong. I hope I get my dinner on time. I hope I, you know, finish that essay I need to write or whatever it is. But if this stress bucket starts to fill up with those negative thoughts, it sometimes starts to overflow. We can think negatively about the past and we can negatively forecast the future. And these are our thoughts that all go into our stress bucket in a day. But what can happen is that that stress in that stress bucket can accumulate over time because you'll be glad to know there's a process of emptying that bucket and it's actually in your sleep. It's in REM sleep and that's why I help people with sleep because I do believe sleep is the best form of free therapy that you can get. So I encourage my clients to have a nap. Uh, And in our sessions, we often have a relaxation session where they do drop off for a nap. Um, So you can empty the stress bucket in your sleep. But if that stress starts to accumulate, and I want people to remember that stress can accumulate over days, months, years even. You start to pile too much into that bucket and then it can even overflow. And that's crisis point. So I know there's other concepts of of stress buckets, but that's my concept that you should actually wake up every morning with an empty stress bucket and you will put natural negative thoughts into them throughout the day, but you should be able to empty it overnight. Wow, that creates a really strong visual uh, metaphor for your concept of the stress bucket. Uh, It'd be really interesting to understand how do people respond when you share that uh, concept of a stress bucket with them? People respond really well. Uh, It's so easy to understand. It's a great visual. The brain loves images more than it loves words. Um, So it really, really stood out from the first time I started talking about it. That is the point that people really latched on because it makes brain function so much easier to understand. I'm actually talking about a part of the brain, but instead of using long words and talking about anatomy and physiology, I'm using something called a bucket. It's so much easier. And you talk about it in terms of, uh, although it can build up over sort of a long period of time, you talk about days as being key. So every day mm. starting with an empty bucket. Is is what for you, is that a really important part of the way you think about it? Yes. Yeah. If you can wake up in the morning with an empty bucket, you are going to start your day feeling motivated, objective, rational and raring to go, right? But if you've already got residual stress in that bucket from the last few days or months, you're already going to be, you know, you're already on the back foot, aren't you? You're going to pile more into that bucket every day during the day. Um, And so it's going to start to build up and you're going to go over that threshold of challenge stress and into threat stress. So you could wake up immediately feeling anxious, feeling threatened because you just haven't completely emptied your bucket overnight. And you, uh, James mentioned earlier, was asking about um, if different people can uh, have, a na- have a sort of inbuilt difference of ability to cope with stress. Do you think in terms of being able to sort of effectively empty the bucket that uh, people can are different when they approach to it? Do some, do some people sort of latch onto the concept and find it easier and if so kind of why is it that they find it easier do you think yep some people find it easier as in they get on board with the process you know once they understand it they're on board with it and and this is like most things in life right so some people it just clicks and with other people it takes a little bit of work but it's not impossible it is this is neuroplasticity you can train your brain to do new and different things the reason 
people find it difficult is that they don't persevere. So other people, yes, they see other people latching onto it quite quickly. And all that this second person might need is just a little bit more repetition. The mind loves repetition. So if you can just persevere a little bit longer, you will get it. But that is the absolute basis of neuroplasticity. You're not hardwired. Our brain isn't hardwired. You can create new nerve pathways in the brain. It takes a bit of work and, it, and a bit of effort, some more than others, um, but it can be done. Yeah, and I think it's funny. We talk about um, neuroplasticity. It, always, it seems it's bizarre. It seems to crop into a lot of things that we don't start like we don't start off talking about it, but actually it crops up a lot. And it's a great subject. It, it, it's it, it a is a subject. great subject, isn't it? Because it's. I think it's really easy to slip into that place where you're like, "I'm stuck. There's nothing. I'm stuck with this now. There's nothing I can do. This is me. Mm. I'm 40, mm. and I, I, I've yeah. been guilty of this. I'm 43. I'm done now. I'm not. Nothing's going to change in my head, right? So. Yeah. Is a lot, do you find a large part of what you have to do with some clients is actually just get them to trust and believe in that process? Yep, yep. I actually had a client uh, who um, were in their 70s and had been told in the past that they'd had ex, um, experienced depression most of their life. Uh, and they came to me and they said that a psychiatrist had told them before that they are hardwired for depression. They are just hardwired. This is just the way they'll always be. That made me so angry because when I then uh, explained to her the principles of neuroplasticity and some experiments that have been done to show how that neuroplasticity does exist, she almost burst into tears. And that's when she told me, she goes, well, I was told I was hardwired. and said, well, someone was wrong. You are not hardwired. So to hold on to that feeling of being hardwired for depression well, that means she's, they will never let go of that, doesn't it? And it is such a shame that people think like that or they've been told that, and uh, you know, from a professional as well, that, you know, there is, you know, neuroplasticity exists. There's scientific experiments to show that it exists. Yeah, and it might be, like, it might absolutely be harder for some people to change that and build new pathways than others, depending mm. on, you know, their health and their age and all of that. Yes. But a lot of it's about the possibility, right? As yes. soon as you wave the possibility in front of someone, people go, wow. Yep. Um, I've got one other question about this, which is kind of the opposite question of what I just asked. Um, and I'm coming at it very specifically um, from being a woman in a certain age of life that's experiencing changes. And I just, I kind of was interested, do you find, um, do, are most of your clients people that have found this challenging all their lives? Or do some people experience that they can deal with less stress as they get older um, for other reasons, for example, menopause, things like that? Yes, I, I do see a lot of females during menopause. Uh, what's happening in menopause because of all the hormonal changes, it's, it's adding another factor. It, it's another variable that's added into those feelings. Um, I have had people that have never experienced it before and they come along where or people who have always experienced something. So it's very variable. I wouldn't say there's a specific pattern, um, but I would say um, menopause is a huge subject uh, and a very common symptom of people feeling anxious or depressed um, and, you know, just feeling unsure of their thoughts, especially if they always have been very much have a feeling of it being in control and being very confident and motivated to then all of a sudden have these feelings of anxiety and doubt is just so jarring 
that it actually even that creates even more stress. But when, once you understand the biology of what's going on uh, in the body and the mind, it starts to make sense. And so how, how do you think people can go about understanding their own stress bucket and what the factors are that are relevant for them and, and how, I guess, large that bucket is, how easy it is to deplete it? Is there stuff that they can do on their own or how can they start that journey, I guess? Yeah, I mean, what I teach my clients is to start off with, I will empty the bucket for you, but then I will teach you how to keep it empty yourself. So these are techniques I want you to take away with you for life. So my clients don't see me for years and years. My therapy is brief therapy. That means, you know, I should be able to help you within a relatively short period of time, something like uh, eight to 10 weeks, and then you will have skills that you will be able to do this yourself. The first thing you need to recognize is just thinking of that metaphor, like how full is my stress bucket? You know, am I really experiencing a lot of anxiety or am I managing, am I coping? Um, If anything, you know, what I should be saying, because I work in a solution focused way is what would my life be like if my bucket was empty in the morning? You know, how, what would I like, if there was a magic wand to get rid of these symptoms I'm having, whatever symptoms they are, what would my life look like? And if you see it, feel that there's, there would be a significant improvement, then you can start doing things yourself. Or if you feel that you can't cope with that, that's when you ask for help. And do you get the sense, or working with your clients, do people understand how full their stress bucket is or 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 are there some people who are carrying stress without realizing it or what do you think in that space yeah it's really interesting so the majority of my clients understand that they have got a full to overflowing stress bucket but i have had a few clients that have come to me that have been recommended by a a relative or a friend and only when their stress bucket is empty do they realize how full it was right because they've sort of said i didn't realize i was so snippy with people that I was constantly getting angry that I was constantly just rushing around doing things Um, and once they have a feeling of feeling very clear-headed and feeling very motivated yet calm they can have that comparison isn't it interesting that you know we see being busy and always rushing around almost like a badge of honor these days. Yeah, totally. You know, oh, I must rush because I'm very busy. I'm very important. You know, people always ask you, oh, what? maybe not da- now during lockdown, but, you know, before we were saying, oh, what, what are you doing at the weekend? And if I say to people, oh, I'm not doing anything. I haven't got any plans. I will be doing something. I might go for lunch. Yeah. But to say that sounds almost lazy. But I'll say, well, sleep is my priority. So I'll have, a, you know, I'll be having a sleep. I might have a nap. I'll watch a film. But it's not about, oh, what did you do at the weekend? And sometimes I used to say, well, nothing. You know, nothing significant. I did do something, but nothing significant. I didn't go here, there and everywhere. But yeah, I, I, um, I get really annoyed when people use being busy as a badge of honor when really actually they're just stressed. I, I read something about that a couple of years ago, and um, it, it seems that there's been a shift. So if you ask somebody, how are you doing? It seems that now most people will mm. reply something like, yeah, busy, good. Yeah, yeah. And in the past, they would have said, I'm doing fine, or they'd have actually mm-hmm. answered the question. But now yeah. imposing that busyness is such yes. a badge of yeah. you know, being valued. It's yeah. so complicated. And it? sleeping is lazy and relaxing is lazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And we've got yeah. leaders who, you know, sleep four hours a night and, you know. Yeah, because you've got to hustle, right? You've got to hustle. Yeah, you've got to do it, right? <laughs> and then one of my favorite little pet peeves is when you see celebrity uh, workout patterns, sleep things on Twitter, and it's like I wake up at 4.32 and exercise for 20 hours, then, you know, eat one crisp or something. Yeah. Um, 
yeah <laughs> it's fun right oh I, it, it's interesting isn't it because I, I I always think there's a really interesting thing around the concept of stillness and how absolutely that is considered to be like we've had to create a drive for mindfulness just to give people permission to be still mm-hmm. and thought you know mm-hmm. and relaxed and stable for a moment because we can't just be okay with being being still and like you say not doing mm-hmm. nothing but not doing anything of massive productivity importance yeah I think it's that concept of switching off isn't it so you know people say well I just can't switch off or no that sounds like switching off so I don't sleep because I don't switch off and I always say to people you know if your brain switched off you'd be dead so you're not switching off you're switching over you're switching over to a different state in your mind which is very therapeutic for the brain and biologically is required uh, as well so, you know, I talked about REM sleep, REM yeah. sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, empties the stress bucket. And REM sleep is dreaming sleep. It's your dream sleep. So if REM sleep is night dreaming, then I just get my clients to daydream. So daydreaming yeah. is good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, And sleep is so powerful. And, and yes. one of the things I read, um, the, the analogy that was used was that when we are awake, our brains are like a, a busy metropolis in terms of buildings. Um, they're uh, large, encroaching on the sidewalks and the pathways. And that when we sleep, what happens is those buildings shrink a little bit um, and the city gets cleaned out and yeah. it leaves us with without the detritus of life in there. That's right. That's exactly um, what happens. We need that cleaning almost to be done. Uh, and that's, you know, my metaphor, the stress bucket needs to be emptied. Yeah. Yeah, good. Um, shifting tack a little bit, we've, we've spoken a bit about individuals. What about organizations? So if, if you've got somebody who's maybe uh, leading a team um, or you know, maybe even leading a larger part of an organization, how can they go about understanding what the stress buckets of their individuals are? And is there anything they could be doing to help um, in their organizations improve the stress relationships of people? Yeah, I think uh, there needs to be more of a drive towards emotional intelligence. Um, Gone are the days of, you know, hitting targets and we need to do this. And like we just said, hustle for everything. I think now people are demanding more empathy at work, more emotional intelligence and, you know, just getting in tune with people. Because if especially if people run your business, you need to be in tune with your people. And I think it's not just about saying, oh, my door is always open. You know, that, that's how we start. You know, if someone's depressed or stressed, that it's really hard to still come in and say, hi, I'm stressed, I'm depressed. So having an open door isn't going to do the trick. You need to come out of that door onto the metaphorical shop floor and ask people. So let's talk. Let's go for a coffee. So what's going on in your life? And it's not just about work. It, it's about a person as a whole. And I think we need to talk about that a little bit more. And that, you know, people have whole lives. It, it's not just what's going on at work. So I think empathy and uh, emotional intelligence is a skill you can learn. I know a lot of people have it naturally, which is great, and they have it in abundance. But it's still a skill you can learn. And I think more emphasis needs to be placed on that uh, in our current times. Uh, it's funny. Well, it's funny in the sense it's not funny at all, but it is definitely curious that increasingly since, I don't know, maybe the last, maybe since the beginning of the year, more and more when we talk to people about not necessarily obviously linked topics, the idea of the place of work in our life and how our life 
around work and separate from work is relevant to work is mm. um, comes up time and time again. And I think one of the things that you talk about um, empathy, I think also that idea of understanding, even if it's not empathy, understanding how differently work plays a part in different people's lives. So for some people, it's their be all and end all. And for some people, it is quite literally eight hours, which they have an enjoyable activity that also pays the bills. And um, I think that's really interesting because I don't I don't know how well organizations support managers and leaders to understand that. Uh, I I had a really good quote once. um, There's no such thing as work life balance. It's just called life. You know, it's just life in that, you know, we need to work to pay our bills, but it'd be nice that if we spend eight hours a day at work to, you know, have a, a relatively nice time. Yes, we are prepared to work hard. Uh, and we know we're doing that for whatever drives us, whether that is for the love of the job, or you're quite right, like you said, Jane, to, you know, pay our bills. But, you know, that when you say work life balance, you're separating work from life, but work is such a big part of our lives. It's enormous. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, I'm just reflecting on the things you've been talking about uh, throughout this conversation and about how much, not just that badge of being busy, but how sometimes, maybe not deliberately, organisations create large workloads for people and then people feel that it's somehow a badge of honour that they're stressed because they've been allocated so much important work. Mm. Is Is that, do you find people sort of almost going, no, but I like having this much work because it shows that I'm important to the organization. Yeah, and that's different for different people, isn't it? And that's where I'm saying that leaders need to get in tune with the different people. So what drives one person to have some status at work does not drive the next person who is just there to do really well and and work hard, but has other priorities in their life. There was um, an Investors in People study recently that said something like 15% of people would rather have workplace support than a pay rise. Now, if that doesn't speak to leaders, I don't know what will, because that we're talking numbers now. They don't want more money and they don't want to hit a bigger target. They want more workplace support. And whether that's flexible working or, you know, being able to talk about mental health issues or have other personal development things going on at work, personal development training rather than just work training, then that's what I think leaders need to sit up and take note. And I think the generations are changing. So what used to drive people, and this is the mismatch we've got. So our leaders at the moment are of a generation where they still feel that those targets and the ticks, the boxes need to be ticked. Whereas the generation coming through now saying, no, we want something different. We want something more. We want an, a well-rounded life all, all over we don't just want to be, you know, just ambitious, ambitious, ambitious and, you know, fritter our life away. We want to be able to still have time with our family and maybe take a sabbatical and go off and travel. Um, so th- things are changing. So at the moment, I think there's a jarring between the generations uh, and that's causing a bit of an issue. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Do you, um, when you think about it, you, that's really interesting because you've just mentioned flexible work policy as something an organisation can do. Um, and separate to that, obviously, they can also do lots of things to support people around understanding their own stress and things like the work you do. But how often do you think organisations actually realise that there are non-financial ways of solving some of these problems around changing their policies or reviewing how they let people define how they work and where they work? 
do organizations get that or do you sometimes have to really sort of explain to them that they they've got the levers in their hands yeah, I think they see sort of the minute you mention mental health to someone, they're like, oh, we're not going to be able to cope with this. What is this all about? Um, so they either treat it like a tick box exercise to say, mm -hmm. OK, yeah, so we've got mental health support. And they don't realize that actually, you know, all maybe someone's asking for is to leave a little bit earlier from work. So um, I don't know if you've read um, Work Like a Woman by Mary Portis. She explains she um repeats a story in there where there was um, uh, a female who got to very high board level of a company on the board was all males and she was the first woman on the board. Uh, what happened was she needed to adjust the time that she started work because she, as well as having young children, she had an elderly relative to look after. So she asked, well, can I come in like 15 minutes later, 30 minutes later um, and start at that time? Because then you know, that'll just make it easier for me. You know, I'm prepared to stay a bit later, but I need to come in at 30 minutes later. And they said no. They said no, because that's how it's always been done. Everybody always comes in at nine o'clock. And they lost the first female on a board because of that. That's incredible. So she wasn't asking for more money. And she was very well qualified as well. So people are, you're losing talent for someone who just wants to say, I just need to leave half an hour here. And I'll probably give you that half an hour another time. I found it lockdown really interesting. Before lockdown, could you ever think of like the big companies ever saying all your staff can work from home? They never yeah. would have had it, would they? No, it's 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 been such a catalyst of change. Look so. what happened. Look what what's happened. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jen, I'm afraid I'm going to wrap us up just uh, in the interest of time. I think we're getting to the end. Um, it'd be great to chat again at some point, maybe about sleep. Um, sure. Yeah. My favorite no. subject, sleep. Yeah, I think I should leave um, you two alone in a room to talk about sleep, given how much you, given how well much you both list. love talking about it. <laughs> that's just sleep. amazing. It's good. Um, yeah. Anyway, just before we get in, is there anything people could do to find out more about you and the work that you do? Have you got anything you'd like to share? Yeah. So um, if people want to find out anything uh, about me, I have a website, ginlally.com. Uh, that's G-I-N. L-A-L-L-I.com. Uh, on there, all my contact details, email, address, and phone number. You can book a call with me. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as Gin Lally, and I'm on Facebook, Gin Lally Solution Focused Therapy, and I'm on Twitter. I am always open to anyone asking me a question. Please feel free to ask me absolutely anything you want. I am always pointing people in the direction of a book or a video or a TED talk that might help you. Um, but I really thrive on sort of Q&As. So if anybody has got a question, please, it's absolutely no obligation to ask me a question. And if I can help, I will do my best. Cool. That sounds great, Jen. And, and when we send out the um, uh, this podcast, we'll share some of those details on there as well. Um, so I guess it's just time to say thank you. So a big thank you from me. That was really interesting. Yeah, and a massive thank you from me. Um, it's it's a subject really close to both our hearts, but it's uh, given me some interesting reflections myself personally as well. Great. So thank you. Well, I want to thank you both for inviting me to talk on your great podcast that I listen to actually as well. Uh, mm. And I've been listening to from the beginning. And I love the chat between the two of you. Oh, thank you, Jim. That's so lovely. Thank you. Okay, so you are back in the conversation with Jen and myself, and that was our conversation with Jen about stress buckets. I think we covered some good stuff there. Um, Jen, did you have any particular takeaways you wanted to reflect on? Yeah, I do, actually. And I thought about it. The minute it was said, I was like, that's what I'm going to mention at the end because it feels really important. 
I think Jin asked a really, really, or asks her clients a really powerful question. And that is, what would it be like if you woke up every morning with an empty bucket? And I'll be honest, at that point, I stopped being a podcast co-host for a minute and went, oh my <laughs> word, what would it be like? And it made me realize how little I have ever felt like that in my whole working life and possibly wow. even before my working life. How little have I, how, and, and that, I just think it's an incredibly powerful question. Yeah, it really is. And, and it's quite evocative, isn't it? It's evocative of a, a beautiful future, um, which is, like you say, highly powerful. Yeah, it made, me, it made me wonder if actually one of the reasons that I think about retirement quite a lot, not because I don't love my job, because I love my job. I love what I do um, and I love my life as it is. But I, I'm quite sort of fixated on the idea of making sure I'm ready for retirement financially and stable and all of those sorts of things. And I do wonder if that's because I look forward to a time where I don't feel I have as many expectations and sources of potentially additional stress. Yeah. Like like Jen says, though, a lot of that is not to do with the circumstances we find ourselves in, but to do with the way that we carry those responsibilities and challenges with us through our life. Yeah. And I think it's a re- I think that's a really interesting point, because I think there is a uh, for everyone, not only is there a variation in the way we carry those things, but also in the way we want to carry those things. I like I don't have any interest in being utterly carefree. I don't. And, and some people will. And that's great. And that's good for them. That's yeah. not right for me. But I do want to wake up and not feel in some way burdened, which is, I think, how I would describe feeling like my stress packet was empty. I would wake up feeling unburdened and like every day was a fresh start yeah and I guess part of that goes back to that distinction that Jin makes between the the challenge stress which is helpful and engaging and motivating and rewarding and that threat stress and trying to get that that balance where you minimize the threat stress and have the amount of challenge stress that leads to an enriching and fulfilling life yeah and it just it just made me reflect on how much this connects to some of the other very practical topics we cover around things like productivity management, around things like uh, when we talk about managing like our own job scope and job crafting and all of those sorts of things that will help you to create less buildup of stress during the day such that you've got a better shot at starting afresh every day. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let us end it there. I think she said... um... I said a lot and said it well, and hopefully it's helpful for people. So until next time, it's just time to check out. You can uh, check out our website, www.worldofwork.io. You can get us on Twitter or LinkedIn. Where are we, Jane? Where are we on Twitter and LinkedIn? Uh, So you can get us at the Wild Podcast on Twitter. Uh, You can find us by searching the World of Work Project on LinkedIn. Um, And as always, we proper love saying hello. We've had loads of people lately. We've had loads. I don't know if people are... I don't know if an episode's gone out where we've been particularly like, please email us, but (laughs) it's been really lovely. Yeah, it's been really good. Cool. Um, One last thing. We've got an Eventbrite page. We're still doing a mixture of online, open and specific uh, online uh, seminars for people. So if you want to check out what we're doing, you can do that as well. Um, And I guess just until next time, it's just time to say goodbye. So thanks for dropping in. Bye. Hi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.